Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. It was the epoch of belief. It was the epoch of incredulity. It was the season of light. It was the season of darkness. It was the spring of hope. It was the winter of despair. We had everything before us. We had nothing before us. We were all going direct to heaven. We were all going direct the other way. In short, the period was so far like the present period that some of its noisiest authorities insisted on its being received for good or for evil in the superlative degree of comparison only. Welcome to another episode of Reconsider, where we don't do the thinking for you, part of the Agora Podcast Network. I'm your host, Eric, and today's episode, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times, or a tale of ups and downs. And the reason I wanted to get into this is because, I don't know, I read way too much of the news, and as much as I recommend y'all go on media diets sometimes, or news diets sometimes, where you cut down how much you read, I'm not very good at it myself, and I keep giving myself excuses that I need to read the news to do things such as, I don't know, run this podcast. But reading the news the past few many years, or reading the internet the past few years, you get this sense that lots of things have been getting worse, and that they've been getting worse for a while. And now we're really just starting to reach the bottom of things getting worse. And it's certainly true that some things are getting worse, right? The world is getting hotter and carbon dioxide levels are only going up. Like, that's bad. And there are other kind of like long-term fears we have, although that might only be the really, really bad one, although it's a really, really bad one. But there is a sense that, like, the economy is getting worse for most people most of the time. And a lot of people think we're getting less safe. And a lot of people think that our mental health is getting way, way worse and stuff like that. And so I actually just wanted to dig into that. And I went into this exercise open to anything. I wasn't here to be contrarian. I wasn't here to say, no, things are getting worse. They're all getting better. And what I wanted to see was essentially like, does our sense that things are getting worse correlate well to things getting worse or not, right? We know I'm a millennial and I think a lot of millennials make fun of the older generation who go, things were better back in the day. Well, guess what millennials are doing? Oh, yes. Oh, yes, we are. We're doing it, right? We are saying things were better back in the day. Gen Xers are saying things are better back in the day. Now, what's interesting is I got the sense that sort of the Gen Z Zoomer Doomers are coming in saying things were better back in the day. And there's stuff like climate anxiety as a, I don't know about a diagnosable thing, but certainly identifiable thing 
in people's minds. But we're saying that things are getting better back in the day. It actually reminds me a little bit of a Simpsons episode in which they zoom back in time where Homer's just a kid and Abe comes in, Abe, which is who's Homer's grandpa, and he says, what are you kids doing, essentially? And Homer says, you wouldn't get it, man. You're not with it. And then Abe says, I used to be with it, but then what it was changed. Now what I'm with isn't it anymore, and what it is seems scary to me. Weird and scary to me, I think. And it'll happen to you, and he points at Homer. Homer says, yeah, whatever. And then it zooms forward, and that, of course, has happened exactly to Homer. And so I think one of the reasons I wanted to do this was, like, I'm 35. I'm sort of now officially middle-aged by all reasonable early middle-aged, but I'm officially middle-aged by all reasonable measures. And so I just wanted to see like my own sense that things were better back in the day, back in the 90s when I was a kid and everything was great. We'd won the Cold War. It was before 9-11. The economy was going up. Clinton was in office. The biggest problem we had was like, was his Monica Lewinsky and his sexual assault scandals. And, And that's how I felt at the time. And how true is it that Over the past 30 years or so, things have gotten worse. So I decided to jump into just like what I'll call the reconsider basket of health and wellness of the nation, which is a bunch of stuff that I thought of that we're going to get into that is not comprehensive. And this is not a good scientific study. And a lot of folks will listen to this and say, hey, what about this thing and that thing that you didn't cover? And I say to that, well, start your own podcast. But this is not meant to be scientific or comprehensive. And it is also, I promise you, you're just going to have to trust me on this one, not cherry pick. This is not me going through and saying, well, I'm going to read a bunch of stuff and dump the stuff that I don't like answer for. So a couple of things that are like not included in this is I'm just not going to talk about abortion. I'm just honestly, I can't even deal with that shit right now. And I'm sure a lot of people are feeling really upset about it. For the trends that I am getting into, we talk about, you talk about some health stuff, a lot of economic stuff, because that tends to be a big issue. And then like violence and wellness and stuff. And so when we're looking at these trends, a lot of the problem with talking about trends is how long are we talking here, right? A lot of stuff goes up and then down and then up and then down. And for example, if you just look at this year and extrapolate, then the stock market trends down, which obviously it doesn't trend down. You wouldn't want to draw that conclusion. So this is the problem with talking about trends. You can cherry pick any amount of data and say, aha, I have a trend. And so we're just going to do our best. We're going to take data sources that go reasonably far back. I'm going to try to go back to at least the early 90s, sometimes farther. But what I'm going to try to do is like focus on the current adult generation, this like millennials and Gen X that are now in their middle ages and try to get a sense of like, have their lives gotten worse? Because when I'm on the internet, a lot of people both kind of like out there that I don't know and that I do know think say that the things for our generation have gotten a lot, lot worse in a lot of different ways. And I want to see for some of the ways that they talk about and I think about, have they gotten worse? So let's find out. So first, gun violence. We're going to focus on the death part of it because it's not everything, but it's a proxy. Now, we do know that like mass shootings, recorded mass shootings are way, way up. And they've basically started Columbine and have gone up and up every year. And I guess this is the other thing we need to think about is like, There are trends that are not statistically all that strong, but still affect us a little bit like 9-11 happened and we lived in fear and we had the Afghan war and then the Iraq war and the TSA and we spent a lot of money on it and Guantanamo Bay and all this stuff, right? So like one big thing happened and it caused us to do a lot, even though, and we'll never know how many acts of terror and how bad they would have been that were deterred by the FBI, the CIA, the DHS, etc. But it just seems like compared to a lot of other problems, terrorism isn't a statistically significant problem in any of our lives, but it's still 
affected us in a lot of ways. And so one thing I'm not able to really get into with numbers is how much things affect us. And so if you look at, for example, school shootings, the odds that your kid's going to die in a school shooting versus a whole lot of other stuff are very, 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 very low. But it still affects us. And is it irrational that it affects us? Maybe in some ways. But there are certain things that are more horrifying than other things. And there are certain things that feel where you have to kind of get on with life. For example, your kid's more likely to die in a car accident. Well, you still need to drive places. So things like that. And so I'm going to talk about, again, trends of stuff out there in the world. But I'm not going to try to plumb in depths of our minds and our hearts to understand how it affects us. So let's talk about gun deaths. This is something where back when I wrote Wedge 2014, we it turns out we'd actually reached a bottoming out of murder. Like murder rate was lower than it had been basically ever. Oh, and by the way, sorry, one more thing. Lots of graphs and lots of sources on reconsideredmedia.com. So go to reconsiderdmedia.com, go to the episode. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. You'll get it all. So we talk talking about a lot of graphs, which every time a podcaster goes, I'm going to talk about a lot of statistics and it's probably not a good idea. Turns out it's not a good idea, but we're doing it anyway. So here we are. And so I'm looking at a graph and the murder rate in the United States kind of peaked twice, once in 75, once in 93, and then dropped down and sort of dropped down a lot throughout the 90s and then sort of bottomed out in 2014. But then it started going up, especially sort of 2018, 2019, it spiked up. And so it peaked up around seven per 100,000 died by murder by gun. And now it's back up at 6.2. So it's actually recently been trending up. Suicide by gun has also been creeping up. It never dropped quite as much. It just hovers between six and seven. And so it's something that has actually been getting somewhat worse recently. And I think what's interesting is if you look at kind of like right wing Twitter, and they talk about Chicago and Baltimore and Trenton and all sorts of kind of like democratic cities, black cities. But if we look at the U.S. gun death rates across the country, they're actually far, far, far more prevalent in red states. So, for example, Illinois has a total gun death per 100,000 of between 10 and 15, and this is all according to Pew. And California is down below 10. Wyoming, Mississippi, Louisiana are above 25. Alabama, South Carolina, Tennessee, Kentucky, Missouri, Arkansas, Oklahoma, New Mexico, and Alaska are between 21 and 25. Whereas like New Jersey, Massachusetts, yeah, New Jersey, Massachusetts, New York are all below 10 or well below 15. And so it's actually one of those things where you're just far more likely to die by a gun in a red state than in a blue state. And that might be for obvious reasons. So I think you see a lot of people say either gun control doesn't work or gun death isn't particularly correlated to gun ownership rate. And we actually talked about in Wedge, like there was a decent, actually a decent correlation of gun death by ownership rate, but not a great correlation of murder by gun ownership rate. And of course, trying to pick apart how well gun control does or doesn't work is actually really hard. But it tends to be the case that blue states have more gun control and red states have less. And I will note that Texas actually is pretty low. It's not quite as low as California, but it's as low as Illinois. So it's between 10 and 15. And so the thing is, you can cherry pick stuff anywhere you want. And so how good are these trends you have to do to really understand it, you have to do better research. But it is trending up a little bit, but it's not worse than it was during our parents' generation, although our parents' generation was a very high crime. This is the boomer generation was a very, very high crime period. 
looking at mass shootings specifically, I know I'd mentioned this before, but back in 2000, again, this is Pew Research Center, we're using the FBI's definition of one or more individuals actively engaged in killing or attempting to kill people in a populated area. So this isn't the four or more people died. This is the like div shooter thing. And so the FBI defines in 2000, which is as far back as this goes, there were three. It then jumped to like 10. And it was like kind of bouncing around 10. And then it seems to have jumped to another level in the 2010s, where it was like 20s each year, there was some 20. And then after 2016, it's not dropped below 30. And in 2020, it was 40. It's definitely going up. Now, again, it's always a very small portion of total gun deaths or gun murders or total murders or stuff, but it's definitely going up. And But what's interesting is if we look at total crime, we're going to look at a, a number of different ways of measuring crime, and we're going to see how that's going. So if you look at how people feel about it, it turns out most people feel like since, other than it being kind of lower in the very early 2000s, the majority of Americans, most of the time, think that crime is rising. Just no matter what year you pick, most Americans think crime is rising. And what's interesting is they really thought crime was rising during the Trump era in the country. Although, interestingly, this diverged where they thought crime was going down in their own locale, their own local area. And it turns out they're wrong. So what's interesting is even though murders are up a bit, other kinds of crime are just down. So, for example, violent crimes per 100,000 people just straight line down from 747 to 379 in 2019. So again, murder had gone up, but violent crimes had gone down. Violent victimizations per 1,000 people down from 79 or 80 in 93 to 21 in 2019. And again, it's basically bottomed out. It actually bottomed out around like 2015 and flattened. But you're now about a quarter as likely to be victimized by violent crime in 2019 than you were in 93. A quarter, 75% less likely. You are 75% less likely to go through your entire life or do, across your entire life to be a quarter the the density of people across their entire lives are victimized by violent crime than they used to be, which is just crazy. Property crimes are down as well. Per 100,000 people, it's down from 4,700 to 2,100. Property victimizations down from 352 to 101. So again, less than a third, or like more than two thirds less now. And it's all just going down, 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 down. Now, after 2019, what happened? I don't quite know yet because I didn't get great data on it. But it's just bananas. It's just bananas. And... It's kind of great. What's interesting is we do need to look at rape and violence and sexual violence, in particular against women, to understand this trend. And what's really interesting is, of course, well, not of course, what's really interesting is it was trending down, 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 just like everything else. So rape per 100,000 population in 93 had peaked at about 42, and then 2012, it dropped to 27 and a half. But this was reported forcible rape rate in the United States from 1990 to 2020. Went way down and then exploded immediately in 2013. It went from 27 to 36, right? And then up and up and up and up and up, all the way to well above 93, 93's rate of uh, 42 and a half to like 43 and a half. And then started going back down after 2017 and going down pretty quickly. And I had to do a ton of research on this. And the problem is, it turns out nobody's actually quite certain because we know, again, there have been a number of studies on this by OJP.gov, by Time did a bit of a meta study on this, Time Magazine. And it turns out like how we think about rape has changed. The likelihood of reporting has changed significantly. The Me Too movement began in 2006, but it really took off around, what was it, 2012, which is right before we started to see massive increases in reporting 
So we know that people are much more likely to report rape now than they used to be. But how much of this trend is explained by that? It could be that it's partially explained. And so the rate of forcible rape did start going up after 2012. It could be fully explanatory. So it would be like the rate of forcible rape has been flat, or it could be over-explanatory where the rate of forcible rape continued to trend down along with other violent crime, but the reporting rate just exploded. It's great that the reporting rate went up, right? Like if people are victimized by crime, they should report it. It should be investigated. But the other like issues with reporting and methodology for like different estimates are widespread. And for example, back in the day, if someone was like fairly intoxicated when they had sex, it was definitely not considered rape. But like under what circumstances, by what studies would an intoxicated person having sex be marked as rape in a given survey? And how do you deal with that? Is it only if someone reports themselves as being having been victimized? Do you count all people who report themselves having been victimized? You have to go through and find if you're trying to look for the real rate, you go through and find people who didn't report themselves. And what if they don't think they were victimized, but your definition says they were right again due to the, the intoxication thing? It's actually really hard. And so there's a good link here. Time study of the CDC's rape numbers is actually really interesting. While we're on crime, let's talk about incarceration. So one note on incarceration is different data sources have very different data for big long-term trend numbers. So I'm looking at trends. I need to pair some of these because they cover different timelines. So the absolute numbers I give you sort of between one source and another are going to seem a little weird. And this is because some sources include local jails and people who are waiting for their trial. Some don't. Some include juveniles. Some don't. Some include immigration detention. Some don't. Some include like territorial prisons or like Indian country and laws on these reservations. Some don't. So it's a little dodgy. But we do know with certainty that the rate of incarceration has dropped precipitously for like 50 years straight. Now, the U.S. still has the highest rate of incarceration of anywhere in the world, and we spend something like $200 billion a year to keep people locked up. Most of these are in state prisons, followed by local jails. Most of the people in local jails have not been convicted yet. So this is like, this is everywhere from like the drunk tank to, again, people have just been arrested and they're awaiting trial. Whereas in state prisons, everyone has been convicted. And in federal prisons and jails, you have the marshals jails, which people are locked up waiting and then convicted folks. Then you have immigration detection, detention and juvenile hall. But so if we look at especially imprisonment, it also correlates with jail. But if we look in particular in imprisonment, we have had a precipitous drop. So and that drop started in 2006 or 2008, depending on how you look at it. So we saw it climbing up a lot over the past 50 years. So from 1970 to 2006, which I guess was 36 years, the rate of incarceration went from about 200 to 1,000. So this is from the JS. So 5X. We're 5X more likely to be in jail. But then it started dropping after 2008. And from 2015 to 2021, tank, just over 600. So down by 40%. So it's not as low as it was in the early 1970s, but it's gone down a lot, which is great news, right? Because people locked up is bad, no matter how you... And what's actually really interesting is we can look at right now the distribution of people and what they're in prison for and why. And what's interesting is there's this myth that like some very significant number of people are in prison for drug possession. And it's just not true. And I hear people talk about this all the time. Like we have to do something about people being in jail for drug possession. The majority of people in prison are in prison for drug possession. It turns out that 
out of so in state prisons, which is where which is the kind of obvious place for it, and also the place that I have the highest fidelity because there are drug crimes that are not possession. There's like dealing versus possession. But of the 1.042 million people in prison, the number that are in jail or in prison for drug possession are 40,000. So less than 4%. And this is, for example, a quarter the number of people who are in prison for murder at 160,000, 143,000 are in prison for rape or sexual assault. And so you just, it turns out, just not a lot of people are in prison right now for drug possession. If we look at other stuff like local jails and federal prisons, it says drug crimes. And those drug crimes are still like less than a quarter of everyone there. And again, it's not clear how many are there for possession versus other drug-related crimes, manufacturing, distribution, selling. But even if you look at all drug crimes in state prisons, it's 146,000 out of 1.042 million. So it's under 15%, most, the majority of people in prison are in prison for violent crimes, right? Being violent. And that's not true in local jails, but it is true in prison. So, and again, local jails, you have a lot of like drunk tank kind of thing, like public order, random property damage. You might get picked up for drugs, but then not convicted. And it is probably not that surprising that if we also look at right now, the South imprisons far and away the most people, whereas places like Maine, Minnesota, Iowa, Washington, Hawaii imprison far fewer. So we have a lot of imprisonment in the South, very little imprisonment elsewhere. But we need to be talking about imprisonment of and incarceration of Black Americans. And so if we think about the decline in imprisonment since 2006, Almost all of that decline is actually accounted for by Black Americans. There's a very lumpy decrease by race from 2006 to now. Very lumpy. It is not, you'd, you'd think it would just be everybody. And it turns out it's not everybody. Almost all the decline has been in the Black population. So peak incarceration 2006 had Black Americans incarcerated at a rate of 2,261 per 100K. So over twice as likely as everyone else. Hispanics were... 1073, whites were at 324. So at that time, if you were black, you were almost seven times more likely to be in prison than a white person. Almost seven times. Crazy. And the rate of incarceration by black Americans has dropped by more than 37%, whereas white and Hispanic imprisonment has actually been flat or nearly flat. And so the decline in our prison population is a decline in black prison population. Whereas again, whites and Hispanics are just as likely be there, which is why instead of like seven times, it's the that difference is now two and a half. So if you're a black person, you're two and a half times as likely to be in prison than a white person, which again, like some people will say this is due primarily to racism. And some people will say racism by the justice system. And some people will say this is primarily due to a higher likelihood of black Americans committing crime. And some people will say it's hard to tell how much is one and how much is the other. But no matter how you cut it, that number going down is really good. So no matter your political opinions, that number going down is really good. What's actually really interesting is so black female incarceration has dropped by 60% over that time. So black women are just far, far, far less likely to now to be in prison. And white female incarceration has increased by 60% over the same time period. So if you're a White woman, you're far more likely to be in prison than you used to be, which is like the only group for whom that's true, which is actually really interesting. I don't know why. I'm not going to worry about why. So speaking of the justice system, let's bounce over to police brutality. So interesting stat about the state of police brutality. 99, and we're going to use fatal police brutality. Again, fatality is only one shred, right? One small part of the issue of police brutality in the United States. And it's also the case that not all police fatalities are, we can be called 
brutality, right? Like there are instances in which an officer is doing a routine stop and someone just starts unloading on them with a gun. And sometimes the officer dies and sometimes the person unloading with the gun dies and sometimes nobody dies. So not all police killings are brutality and brutality is not fully encapsulated by killings, right? So, but we're going to look at it as a proxy measurement because it's pretty simple and this is a podcast, not a university. Okay, so some instant stats. 99% of instances in which a police officer has killed an American in the 21st century have not resulted in any criminal charges. Not even talking convictions, charges. So it seems unlikely that 99% of police killings are so straightforward that there should never be charges. We've talked in our George Floyd episodes about how there are just very significant protections and for police officers, and it's actually really hard to even get the evidence to be able to press charges, and police unions are a big part of this, and the deals they have with cities are a big part of this, da, 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 da. Another interesting fact is there's not a super strong correlation between police killings and violent crime. So if you look at police killings by state and violent crime by state, yeah, there's some correlation, but it's not all that strong. And then, of course, the United States is far more likely to kill people. So 13.2% of police killings globally happen in the United States, even though it's 4% of the global population. Again, this isn't all necessarily police brutality. It turns out the United States is a very violent place compared to places like Europe. And police officers are more likely to be shot at and will have a ton more guns. And I know there are a lot of people who like don't want this to be a complex story. And I know it's not my job to for you, but it's likely that there is complexity to this story. Because you also have people on the other side who are like, well, if a police officer killed somebody, they probably had it coming, which is also insane, or it's probably even more insane. But we have this complex story. And we've talked about this again in the George Floyd episodes where like, there's this kind of spiral of violence where after like a bunch of police got gunned down in LA in 95, they started arming themselves more and thinking themselves more in a militarized way because they don't want to get gunned down by people who are just very well armed, right? Who have hollow point rounds and you have large magazines. And so the police just got slaughtered there. And then they started buying surplus military hardware and they started training to use it. And so they got more militarized. And then is it possible that people being pulled over or accosted by the cops because the cops have gotten more violent, they're afraid. And so they want to pull the trigger first. And so is there this spiral of violence going on and, and like a culture of a culture that's changed? due to circumstances. Well, let's find out because has police violence gone up since 1995, right? Since that event. And it turns out the answer is yes, it has gone up since 1995. And what's interesting is it had been going down. And so there's this great meta study by Lancet that shows somewhat radically different numbers between different sources of police brutality and killings. But one thing we know for certain, since about 1995, the deaths by police officers started to climb, but since 2010 started climbing quicker. And then kept climbing through 2019. And things got weird in 2020 for a lot of reasons. And so we're not going to try to get into what was going on in 2020 and 2021 too much. But police killings did go up. Now, what's interesting is they're still lower than in the 1980s. And it was throughout the 80s and early 90s that police killings were dropping. In particular, police killings of Black and Hispanic people. So we're going to talk about this. We're going to bring race into this. Remember how we talked about white Americans are, their jail rate is pretty constant? Well, it turns out since 1980, there's been a constant uptick in the likelihood of white Americans killed by police. Now, still, white Americans are far less likely to be killed by police than black Americans, although they're now about equally likely to be killed, again, as a density, as a rate, as Hispanic Americans. So the killing of Hispanics went down. The killing of whites has gone up. The killing of blacks went down and then started ticking back up 
or went up somewhat significantly from like 0.6. Again, this is mortality rate per 100,000. So 0.6 to 0.7 or 8. And so notice we're talking about numbers here in that are less than one per 100,000, whereas like your likelihood of being murdered is double digits per 100. Murdered generally is double digits per 100,000. So it turns out police are still about our two orders of magnitude less likely to kill you than a random person. And so we could say, well, statistically, it's not a big deal. But it's also the case that they're the police. They're the people who are supposed to keep you safe, protect and serve, right? So it's still a problem, even if they're not like the Terminator murder machine of the United States. And so we still do really care about this. So what happened was, from what we can see, police killings of black Americans peaked in about 2014 and then started kind of then dropped a little bit and it kind of flattened out. And it's possible that number is going to continue to go down. It's possible to stay flat. It's possible to go up. We don't know. That trend line is very short. You're still in much better shape regardless of whether you're black or Hispanic from the 80s. So again, we see this trend we have where we have a significant, like if you just look at the trend of Americans as a whole, it looks like it's just been ticking up and up and up and up and up. But for black Americans and Hispanic Americans, there's this dramatic decline. And because there's a lot of white people, there's a less dramatic incline. But because there's a lot of white people, the average has continued to go up. So, but again, it trended up for black Americans since about 2005. And so, yeah, this is like a very, very lumpy picture. And my fiance actually told me like, we're looking at a lot of stuff by region and by state as well, because the United States doesn't kind of go as one force ever, and in particular in trends like this. So by state, it's super lumpy. So in particular, looking at the rate of killings of black Americans in West Virginia, Colorado, North Carolina, Oregon, and Washington, police mortality among black Americans is up significantly in the last 10 to 20 years. Whereas in Connecticut, DC, Florida, Georgia, Iowa, Kansas, Maine, Massachusetts, Michigan, Nevada, Oklahoma, we've seen declines. So this trend of police brutality is lumpy. The trend of police brutality against or these killings of black Americans is lumpy. But again, Overall, we saw a big decline followed by a less big but significant increase and then a flattening for black Americans and a steady increase for white Americans and then a decline in flattening out for Hispanic Americans. And just for everyone else out there who's like, I'm not any of those, your likelihood of getting killed by police is pretty flat and it is much lower than anyone else. So if you just take all other races is the data we have. If you're any other race, you're less likely to be killed by the police than anyone else. And that number has stayed flat. So and one thing to note as we talk about the racial disparities is I've noticed before, but interestingly, it's the case that per police encounter, so per time that you are accosted by the police, white Americans are actually significantly more likely to be killed by a police officer than black Americans are. Right. So black Americans are, of course, much more likely to encounter the police. And so throughout their lives, they're two times more likely to be killed by the police than whites. But it is the case that both armed and unarmed white Americans are more likely to be killed by the police in a given encounter than black Americans are. But you multiply that likelihood times the number of encounters and you get that significantly higher likelihood throughout their lives. But I guess the good news is that, again, much lower than in the 80s and while it's higher, and the bad news is it's higher than the 90s, but for Black Americans, it seemed to have dropped a little bit and bottomed out. Now, I want to talk economy, but I want to talk economy next time. So we're going to have probably an episode that is just as big looking into economic stuff. I'm going to preview it now because we're getting close to 45 minutes and I'm not going to make a two-hour episode here. So we're going to talk about how have real wages moved? And there's all sorts of different ways to measure that. So how much has our ability to buy things changed? Four different groups for the 
top 10% for the median for much lower income earners. And then we're also going to look at inflation. We're also going to look at rent as a percentage of income. We're going to look at home ownership rates and home costs. We're going to look at medical bankruptcies and medical debt. And we're also going to look at some other rando stats that people ask me to pick on the child death rate, illegal immigration, and sort of costs associated with that. So this is all going to chew up a lot of time. It's going to be a lot of fun because there's a lot of unexpected stuff in this stuff that surprised the heck out of me and will surprise the heck out of you. And so I will record that as soon as I can. I look forward to sharing it with you in part two of the best. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. Until then, my friends and dear listeners, thank you for being part of the show. Thank you to all of our patrons. Thank you to everyone who has shared the show with others. The show is like pretty thriving right now, although we'd still love more listeners. And I hope this is a great one to share with some friends because like you learn something interesting from this and you go like, oh yeah, I learned something interesting. Maybe you should listen too. So I'd love for you to think about if a friend should hear this episode. And with that, don't let the pundits do the thinking for you. Pause and reconsider. This is Eric signing off. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.